Welcome to our uh, final panel of the day, uh, when policy stands in the way of adoption. And um, two changes in our program to note. One of them is some of the printed materials uh, misstated the um, job description of Professor Bartholot, who we just heard from. Um, be assured that she is a professor at Harvard Law School, even if you got one of the handouts that uh, lists her as being like a secretary at the Health and Human Services Department. Uh, <laughs> yes, I know, I'm, I have no explanation. These things mysteriously happen. Um, but, uh, and the other program change is on this panel that you're about to hear, because um, we had originally planned to hear from uh, professors Mark Montgomery and Irene Powell, who are uh, co-authors of uh, a fascinating book. They are both professors of economics at Grinnell College. Um, unfortunately, Professor Irene Powell was unable to join us today, uh, leaving her husband and co-author, uh, Mark Montgomery, um, to give a uh, presentation. This um, that you will get to hear about uh, the book, and that's, I think, the thing that uh, is most exciting. Um, I will uh, again introduce all three of our panelists uh, at once and then uh, turn the, uh, the mic over. Uh, we will first be hearing from Professor uh, Margaret or Peg Brinig of Notre Dame Law School. She is the Fritz Duda Family Chair in Law there. Um, she is an interdisciplinarian who um, I believe is an economist as well, uh, which means that there will be uh, multiple multiple economics talent on this panel. Um, she sits on the Executive Council of the International Society of Family Law and has published uh, a great deal in that area. Uh, she has won a teaching prize, I believe, from George Mason, um, uh, where they have one of our very favorite law schools, uh, the Distinguished Professor Award, and she is a member of the American Law Institute. Um, Professor Brinney will be followed by uh, Professor Mark Montgomery, of, um, let me just dial this up here, uh, of Grinnell College, the excellent uh, liberal arts college in uh, Iowa, right? And um, he is a professor of economics who teaches mathematical economics, the economics of education and environmental economics. Um, uh, his research has, has appeared in many leading journals uh, with Irene Paul, uh, he is not only the co-author of the upcoming uh, Saving International Adoption, but is also um, co-author of a mystery novel. <laughs> Cato attracts such diverse talent. And uh, next time he comes here, we will ask him about the mystery novel. But for now, we are looking forward to hearing about Saving uh, International Adoption. And finally, our uh, last panelist is Dr. Ryan Hanlon of the... Um, uh, National Council for Adoption, and he is the Vice President of Education, Research, and Constituent Services there. Uh, he joined them in August of last year. Um, his background, which is quite interesting, is 13 years of experience as an adoptional, adoption professional, including executive director of a Hague accredited agency that focuses on both domestic and intercountry adoption. Um, he is a frequent speaker at national conferences. He has, I believe, uh, three different master's degrees, which is also going to take a record probably here, um, uh, including a master of social work degree and has served as a social work field instructor um, to both undergraduate and graduate students. Um, so please join me in welcoming Professor Peg Brinick.
So since I usually work um, with empirical things and have PowerPoints, and I'm not doing that today, I am nonetheless going to begin um, as uh, Stephanie did with some numbers. After reaching highs in the 1960s and 70s, adoptions have decreased. Since 2005, they've decreased every year, especially among international adoptions, as Betsy told us, which now constitute less than 10% of all um, adoptions. Public adoptions have held steady since a big increase in 1998 after the um, Adoption and Safe Family Act um, and are about 44% in, in 2014, which is the latest number that I have. So one of the questions is going to be, why are we spending all this time on international adoptions, which is less than 10%, and, and um, uh, on public agency adoptions or adoptions from foster care, which is 44%, leaving out this whole other segment, which I'm going to talk about today. International adoptions, as Betsy told us, are increasingly more difficult. There are more and more sort of transaction costs being imposed, which is going to reduce the, um, the number of adoptions. They are more expensive than they, they were back 30 years ago or whenever you did it. Um, there's been, uh, there are some religious agencies that do a lot of international adoption. For example, um, I've got friends who adopted from through a Catholic um, agency from Mother Teresa's orphanage in Calcutta. There were a, lot, a number of different religious groups that were helping adopt some of the orphans um, post the earthquakes in Haiti. Uh, World Vision is famous for baby lifting all kinds of kids after the fall of Saigon, um, as has Bethany Christian Services. There has been a big push toward adoption out of foster care as a, um, a national policy, and particularly for hard-to-place um, children. One thing that, that nobody's mentioned, and I'm just going to throw in there, is that there are a lot of kids in China who are the so-called left-behind children. Um, and their parents are working in cities. They live in rural areas where there really aren't any jobs. And there are millions of children who are on their own. They, they may or may not have any relative still in the villages where they live. They're not getting any education. They're subject to a whole bunch of ills. They also potentially could be um, adopted. There have been demographic changes in families in the US, too. Um, there uh, is in vitro fertilization and other kinds of treatments for infertility, but we're also delaying childbearing. Um, and the, particularly religious couples sometimes are unwilling to undergo procedures that aren't um, natural um, in order to become pregnant, and they tend to be um, very interested in adoption. The result of all these um, sort of constricting of the, of the flow has been that, that power has shifted from adoptive parents who, who had all the power in the um, 1950s and 60s to birth mothers. It was never with the children themselves. And um, 
we aren't signatories anyway to the Convention on the, the Rights of the Child. I mean, we're signatories, but we haven't ratified it. But um, the kids seem to be left out of the equation a lot in, in a lot of the policy uh, discussions. To some extent, the movement's also been away from what Betsy mentioned, which was sort of independent placements through lawyers and doctors. There really are very few of them um, now. Um, that also was reaching a high in the, the um, 50s, 60s, 70s. A lot of doctors in particular and some lawyers got in trouble for um, baby selling, basically. Uh, so there's much less of that. And there's also been a rise, particularly among the African-American community, to kin care placement, sometimes from directly to other uh, family members and sometimes through uh, the public uh, foster care system. So what I want to do is to talk about the needs of the various players. And um, in the adoption uh, terminology, this is the adoption triad. What do adoptive children need? They need the same things as any other children need. And sometimes they need it more than children who are with their um, families of origin. They need fit parents, parents who will, are able to take care of them and who will be able to do a good job and not be so distracted by other things in their lives um, or illness or anything else that they can't take care of them. They need love. And they need stability. And the way that stability tends to play out in this particular field is either through movement from one foster care situation to another one or disruptive adopt, ad, adoptions, which would be about 15% of the adoptions, particularly from the, the um, public agencies, tend to not work out and the kids get returned and have to be adopted uh, by somebody else. Very hard on the, the children. Birth mothers, as was mentioned during the, the last uh, talk, need a lot too. They need a stable relationship with whoever it is that's counseling them and with the adoptive family. They need at least assurance that their child or children are doing all right. Um, increasingly, as the child gets older, they need contact um, with either the adopt through the adoptive parents about how that child is doing, or with the child, him or herself. And they may probably need counseling to deal with the regret or loss that um, is inevitably affected with giving up a child or having a child sort of more or less forcibly uh, removed from your family. What do birth parents need? They also need stability so that they can feel free to bond with their, their new child. They need assurance that the relationship won't be cut off, um, either by the birth parents suddenly appearing after uh, years of never being in the picture, or cut off by third parties. They need freedom from scrutiny like any other parents do, not continual monitoring um, by anybody once the relationship is formalized to allow better parenting. They need counseling about what to expect and the likely effects of the adoptive child on their relationship as a couple, on relationships with other family members, and with the birth mother. There was recently a um, new article that Heritage did. There was one in the Times also, and one um, 
that I just uh, saw today somewhere else, and I forgot to write down the name of where I saw it, on contracting, contracting out by public agencies to private agencies um, and private religious, uh, religiously affiliated agencies. In part, that's because of the shrinkage of adoption in other fields. If you've only got four kids you're placing a year or something like that, you can't have a whole battery of social workers uh, work, working for your agency. It's better to spend the money on something else. So as this, the numbers of infant adoptions have shrunk, there's been a tendency to contract out. What sometimes gets lost in the shuffle when we start talking about LGBT rights or the rights of newly married couples or single parents or anybody else to adopt is that if agencies are forced to withdraw, it isn't just going to be from these public contracted out kinds of adoptions. It's going to be from the private placement at birth kinds of adoptions, and it's going to be from international adoption, too. So why are religious agencies a good alternative? They're more likely to have similar values between the birth and adopt with the birth and adoptive families. They're more likely to see adoption as a continuous process, not a one-time deal, and a whole set of developing relationships. They're therefore, um, there are a lot of statistics on this, um, more likely to have adoption contracts permitting at least information um, flowing between the birth and adoptive parents. They allow, are apt to allow birth moms rather than just social workers, um, good though they may be, uh, to make the choice of who the adoptive parents are going to be. The parents chosen may not be the next person in line. And like parochial school teachers, the social workers involved are trading their own ideals for salary. They get paid less. They don't have the financial incentives that states have of having to place a certain number of kids in order to be able to, to get bigger shares of TANF block grants and things, things like that, um, which encourages um, some state agencies or, or uh, local agencies to work for a volume of placements out of foster care rather than stable relationships or, or anything else. Thank you. Uh, my wife was supposed to be here. Uh, she wasn't able to make it, and she's going to regret that because I'm going to go off script, and we all know what happens in this town when somebody goes off script. Uh, let me say a little bit about our background. Uh, we uh, have a birth daughter who's uh, 33 years old. We have an African-American son adopted in infancy from Texas who's now 26. We have a son who's now 23 who was adopted from Sierra Leone in West Africa at age uh, six and a half. And as it happens, relative to these panels, our daughter is in a relationship with another, she, she's married to another woman, and they're having, they just had two children by in vitro fertilization and are raising them in Africa. Okay, so in, in, in a way, as parents, we have left no stone unturned in searching for the unconventional. Um, I, I wanna 
talk about international adoption, as you know. This is, uh, a, and it's a very different kind of problem, set of problems, from uh, domestic adoption. I would like to say something tying into that previous discussion. I remember when we first started studying international adoption and got involved in international adoption, I remarked to a friend that, you know, when you get involved in international adoption, the first person you run into is Jesus because evangelism suffuses international adoption all the way through, not only with the adoptive parents, but a lot of the institutions that put children up for adoption. Now, uh, I, I'm not criticizing. Some people have criticized this quite severely. Catherine, uh, Catherine Joyce wrote a book a few years ago called The Child Catchers, which argued that international adoption was an extension of the Christian rights recruiting methods, and it was to proselytize children. Um, I actually, as someone who is not religious and, and whose views are kind of orthogonal in a lot of ways to the Christian right, have been rather impressed by the fact that um, the, the, the Christian community has stepped up to the plate and done adoptions. I mean, I am a professor, right? And we professors are so committed to social justice that we're willing to talk about it for hours on end. Whereas these people were going out and building orphanages and adopting children and, and creating the institutions that would get them. And I, and I admire that. Um, and as far as how does this affect things like the adoptability by families who are, who are uh, LGBT, uh, QT. Um, I don't know. I, my, my impression is that that will be more and more of a problem uh, as time goes on. Uh, I have only little data points. There was a, a, in Uganda, there was an orphanage director who told me they were worried that children might be adopted for homosexual purposes. I'm not sure what that meant. But uh, I know we've encountered uh, anti-gay sentiment among some of the parents adoptive parents we interviewed, but it, it's unclear how that's going to. I wanted to just say that to sort of connect a little bit to the previous. So I think that in international adoption, this is to some extent an issue. I don't know, haven't studied it enough to know how significant it is. Let's talk then about international adoption and what Professor Bartholet said. To say that, she says that government is a main impediment to international adoption succeeding, to which I say, amen. I said I wasn't religious, but. Um, and sometimes government opposes adoption internationally for very strange reasons. For example, South Korea sent thousands of children to the United States for decades after the Korean War. Nobody had a problem with this. But in 1988, the Summer Olympic Games came to Seoul, and this was a big deal because this was illustrating the country's economic power, okay? And then Bryant Gumbel made a snide remark in covering the Olympics that Korea's basic export was its children. Also, there was a publication of an article in a relatively minor American journal criticizing uh, Korean adoption, said babies, Korea sells them, America buys them, and that wouldn't be such a big deal, but the North Koreans reprinted it and posted it in the South. And immediately, international adoption shut down temporarily. Rules were put in place to try and suppress it. It was very difficult to do because they didn't know what to do with these children. And after that time, it has fallen significantly. 
Russia does not allow international adoption now. Why not? In 2012, a Moscow whistleblower died in custody after a year being held without charge. The Obama administration, concerned about the human rights issues, imposed some penalties on some of the government officials and some of the oligarchs who were involved in that. Instantly, by which I mean about a week, the Russians uh, passed a law to shut down international adoption. That wasn't about the best interest of the child. They were embarrassed and angry. Professor Barthelot told us about Romania. She said that one of the reasons Romania stopped adoption was because the people who were in charge of Romania's joining the European Union um, were opposed to it. It actually, I'm gonna modify that slightly, it was one woman. She was the Baroness of Winterbourne. Her name is Emma Nicholson. She bitterly opposed international adoption and wanted to shut it down because she thought it was one of the most evil enterprises. She used that word, evil. It's sort of what Professor Bartlett said. Something goes wrong in adoption, it's very evil. The fact that Romanian children had been in institutions where they sat up to their ankles in urine, that wasn't evil enough to worry about. But the adoption, that was evil. Well. This is not supposed to be about a rant uh, about the decline of international adoption, though that is something I like to rant about. Um, and it's quite amazing to me how many enemies international adoption has, and I use that word advisedly, how many people are so bitterly opposed to it. But let me talk a little bit about the Hague Convention. That's really the purpose of this panel. And, and I think it also speaks to some of the other problems in international adoption. I'll tell a story. I have a colleague who's from Jamaica, She's married to a man who is Thai, but he was raised in Laos, and he travels on a Laotian passport, so his citizenship is really Laotian. And they wanted to adopt. They're in America, they were in Iowa, living with us, uh, living in my town, my, co my college, and um, they wanted to adopt, and as it happened, this man's mother, who lived in Thailand, had some kind of connection with a, really a girl, a young girl there, who became pregnant under the most horrific circumstances and wanted to put the child up for adoption and uh, in fact was required by her family to do that. And she was happy to let this professional couple in America take her child. So she gave the child to the mother and uh, the sister, this man's sister was made the legal adopter, uh, not the legal adopter, the legal guardian and everything was fine and they, Skyped home one day and there was this beautiful little boy that could be their son and they could adopt him and bring him to America. It was just one last step. Just finish the adoption. The Thai authorities were okay, but you had to get this child into America, so you had to officially adopt them as a foreign couple. So they started going to adoption agencies. The adoption agencies said, we can't work with you. I'm sorry. I said, why not? Well, because you and that child met before it was arranged by government officials. And the Hague Convention very strictly specifies they don't want people arranging their own adoptions. You have to do it through the, this central authority that the, um, that the Hague Com Com Commission requires, that the Hague Convention requires, and they hadn't done that. Now, that's, one story about one couple with one aspect of The Hague. But it gives us an idea about how these rules 
make it harder to adopt. And you might ask, what's the big problem? Why can't you get together and meet and have a child? Maybe you've been working in an orphanage and you know a child and this child's birth parents are rallying to let you take this child, but you can't do it. Well, for one reason, if you let them meet, somebody might get paid. There might be a transfer of money. That could be baby selling. And we must do everything we can to protect against baby selling because that is child trafficking. And better we shut down an entire country and stop all of the adoptions coming there instead of allowing some very, very desperately poor birth mothers to get some slight amount of compensation. I don't think I'm, I'm being strident here, but I don't think I'm exaggerating sort of the attitude of b both uh, local international, the, the international uh, controllers of international adoption, or that is the, the agencies, the UN agencies that are in control of international adoption, that they have that kind of hostility. Now, that's only one problem, but what we do know is that the Hague doing this sort of thing by imposing standards raises cost. The fact that every agency has to be cleared by this central authority raises costs. And international adoption is already extraordinarily expensive. Now, there's a growing body of literature that actually looks at the effect of the Hague Convention. Using multivariate statistical fancy cool models, um, not everybody believes in them. But it shows that there was a paper by Farrat in 2015 that shows that countries that signed the Hague release fewer children. Uh, my wife and I are doing a study right now of that that the, when you look at the number of adoptees per million children, okay, the, if a country signs the Hague Convention and puts the Hague Convention in force, its adoption drops by something like two standard deviations, which is a fancy way of saying a lot, okay? So, you know, naturally, and this is the kind of thing you could say at the Cato Institute and not get thrown in the street, um, we actually feel that international adoption is overregulated, that it would be better to tolerate contact between parents who are adopting and parents who are placing the children, even if some compensation got exchanged. Because that's really what happens in America. There's open adoption in this country. And in open adoption, a birth mother can meet the parents. She can move in with the adoptive parents. They can pay her expenses. They can't give her money to compensate her for the adoption, but if she's living in their house, the scope for illegal payment is virtually limitless. And you ask any adoption professional, well, they'll tell you what happens. This is not a disaster in this country. It actually eliminated some of the abuse of birth mothers that happened in the bad old days when adoption was this shameful thing and it was covered up and you had a baby in some remote place away from your family. So there are, uh, I think Professor Bartholet is absolutely right. What is happening to international adoption, and it's a tragedy, is in some ways beyond the scope of American um, policy. But I believe, as she has suggested, a lot of this is really attitudes and the amazing amount of hostility that international adoption generates, even among uh, people in the United States, sometimes even among adoptees. And that if we could fight that, Okay, we might be able to hopefully resurrect some of this because as she said, you know, 
I would never say anything that suggests that the plight of children in foster care in America isn't awful, and they don't go through awful things, okay? And may lightning strike me if I apply that. But you know, international adoption is also um, correcting some pretty serious problems. In our book, we did some calculations about adoptions from three countries, Guatemala, Uganda, and Ethiopia, over a relatively short period, seven years. And we looked at the difference in mortality rates among children. And we estimated, and this is a conservative estimate, that those adoptions allowed 600 and some children to do something they would not have been able to do had they not been adopted, live to age five. So this is a, so resurrecting this is really a serious human rights issue. This is saving people's lives in a very significant way, beyond all of the stuff that Professor Bartlett talked about as making children and institutions healthier and giving them a chance to live. I mean, it's actually a life and death issue. So am I optimistic that we can resolve this? I think the things that Professor Bartlett is doing is our best shot at this. So I encourage you to uh, take advantage of the opportunities she gave you. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. So in the brief time I have with you, I'm going to take on the ambitious task of trying to talk about all of the, the three main types of adoption, adoptions from foster care, private domestic adoption, and inter-country adoption. So uh, buckle up. Um, I'm going to start with adoptions from foster care. And, and by way of background, um, you should know, if you don't already, that in 1999, the, the number of children in foster care peaked. There were 567,000 children in foster care in 1999. And that number has decreased um, since then very steadily uh, until 2012, where it actually dipped below 400,000. And then since then, the number's actually um, been increasing. And, and the, the reason for that, um, and, and the, the last number we have was 437,000 children currently in foster care. Uh, the reason for that, child welfare experts point to, is the opioid crisis in our country. More children, especially young children, are entering foster care um, than they had been in years past. And so in February of this year, our government, Congress, passed a, a massive spending bill. I'm sure you all heard about it. I'm sure Cato had something to say about that. Um, but tucked in that large spending bill was what's called the Families First Preventive Services Act. Some people just call it Families First. And what this does is it looks to um, prioritize family preservation work by diverting children from ever entering foster care. Well, how do they do that? Well, they, they're going to start paying for in-home services. They're going to start um, paying for substance abuse treatment. They're going to start um, paying for mental health counseling. Really good, important things. I think any child welfare expert, most of us even who aren't child welfare experts, would say we, we need to be focused on family preservation work. The problem, and, and what I want to um, point out um, as my concern with this policy approach, is how we're paying for it. Well, how we're paying for this, and Robin mentioned earlier the, the Title IV-E funding, we're, we're now paying for these services with other child welfare funds. We, we took funds that were previously restricted to maintain foster care, 
to support adoption assistance and to help reunify children who are currently in foster care, and we're now spreading that thinner. Instead of providing more support for child welfare, we're just asking states to, to use the same amount of money and, and spread it wider. Um, we might say, well, isn't it a good thing that the federal government is, is reimbursing? Well, it's a partial reimbursement, and when states have limited funding, the problem is we're gonna be doing less of the work that has been successful at reducing the number of children in foster care. Um, um, Peg mentioned ASFA and how the Adoption and Safe Families Act actually reduced the number of children in foster care, how it reduced the time frame that we allowed children to languish while, um, while trying to reunify them. And instead we moved to more timely find them a permanent, stable, safe family through adoption. And we've also, through, since 1980, we've been incentivizing adoptions from foster care in our country. And in, in 2010, we widened the eligibility. The result for states and tribes that participated was they saved in just one year $109 million when we supported moving children from foster care to adoption. That's not all their savings, that's just the savings that happened when we increased our eligibility. So why are we taking funds that were supporting adoption and now using that for family preservation instead? I would um, suggest that our, our approach needs to be a continued focus on the 118,000 children waiting on adoptive families, that we continue to advocate for them, that we continue to fund um, adoption assistance and subsidies so that all of those children can find permanent families. Um, the, the second topic, that of private domestic adoption, this is sometimes called infant domestic adoption. Um, Peg talked about this. Um, this is, is something that's regulated at the state level. And so um, there, there are a few federal um, laws and regulations that impact uh, private domestic adoption, but primarily this is regulated at the state level. And so we now have um, 50 states plus the district plus every tribe and territory has their own different framework for how this is set up. And it's complex and it's intricate, but we've been doing private domestic adoptions for a long time. And so um, there are a lot of rules and regulations in place. Those rules and regulations, however, have not kept pace with the rise of the internet. And so now um, many private domestic adoptions are able to skirt the rules and regulations because online facilitators are connecting with expectant parents before those expectant parents are connecting with private child placing agencies. In, in previous decades, the model looked like what Peg and others have talked about where expectant um, parents, often just an expectant mother who is usually in a very vulnerable situation is making a, an adoption plan with the support and the counseling of a licensed child placing agency. And that model has now changed so that more and more of these expectant parents, these, these vulnerable women usually, are connecting simply with an online facilitator who is tech savvy and knows how to exploit the loopholes in state laws and regulations so that these women and, and, and birth parents are not getting the counseling that they deserve both before and after an adoptive placement happens. And, and what I wanna submit to this group is that so long as we have a two-tiered system, one in which the um, adoption agencies have the burden of record keeping, of providing ongoing counseling, and of maintaining state licensure, and they're working in the same field 
against these online facilitators who don't have to play by any of those rules. We're going to have disparate services where um, the, the online facilitators are getting more and more resources. The private child placing agencies have less resources, and we're going to be moving in the wrong direction in terms of the care that the adoptive, the prospective adoptive parents, the birth parents, and the children by adoption deserve. Uh, finally, I do want to talk about intercountry adoption, and, and Betsy and Mark and others have talked about this, um, so I don't want to go on too long. Um, I do want to say, though, that the, the United States was the leader in intercountry adoption. Uh, we pioneered this field um, in the 1950s, late 40s and 1950s, and we were a leader for decades, and now we're, we are leading the decline. Um, we, more than any other nation, have been declining in the number of intercountry placements um, as a percentage of our placements. Um, our government has um, taken our eyes off of the desire to protect children and to find families for children, and instead our desire is to protect prospective adoptive families. And don't mishear me here, that is a good and important thing. There should be protections for prospective adoptive families. But as Betsy said, children do have a human right to a family. And when all we're doing is putting up more and more safeguards and, and causing intercountry adoption to become more and more expensive, we're making it even more difficult for these children to find families. Um, one small example is um, just within the last few months, it's now become more expensive for adoption agencies if they place siblings for adoption. Uh, those, those of us who work in um, foster care or private domestic adoption would, would be outraged to hear that about intercountry adoption. Why? Because in child welfare, we seek to keep siblings together whenever possible. Adding an extra financial barrier there is not a way to do that. Um, and, and when asked, um, our officials tell us that this is simply necessary. We need more scrutiny and more regulation on adoption agencies. Um, I don't think adoption agencies should go without regulation or scrutiny, but I do think we have so many barriers in place right now that we're making it more and more difficult for these children to find families. Um, Betsy mentioned this, but um, I think it's worth repeating. Many of these decisions are not made with the benefit of a legislative mandate. They're not, some of them aren't even made because of, of regulations. These are, are simple policy pronouncements made um, by members of, of the um, Department of State and their staff. And I think as a, as a community, we need to be challenging any regulation that doesn't have the proper mandate, but certainly any regulation that works against the interests of children finding permanent families. Thank you. Before we turn to the audience for questions, uh, I'd like to encourage responses among the four of us. Now, uh, I will take the prerogative of the moderator. Uh, you just knew that uh, Cato was going to come out uh, in response to uh, a couple of the suggestions about higher federal funding and about more regulation of uh, private adoption. And um, let me return to my point about pluralism. You know, part of the genius of pluralism, and uh, the <clears throat> we know that there, just as there are sending and receiving countries in international adoption, so there are sending and receiving states in domestic adoption, because um, for a variety of reasons, including uh, economics, interest in becoming adoptive parents, you have some states that. Uh, find it very hard to place their surplus of children placed in care, and you have other states that have effectively have shortages. And 
interstate um, negotiation and, and, and compacts of this sort, uh, which were, of course, one of the great um, chapters in the rise of adoption by gay people, because you find that even if Texas or some other state had a rule against gays adoption, they did not have a rule against interstate arrangements at which the receiving uh, couple in Massachusetts uh, uh, might, might be gay. Uh, likewise, you have uh, you, you obviously have, as, as, as you described it in a somewhat critical way, and we in Cato often describe in a more neutral way, you have opportunities to skirt um, attempts at regulation in the private adoption field too. Now, this ties in, it seems to me, with someone's observation earlier that over the decades, uh, from originally adoptive parents being in the catbird seat, uh, you now have tended to uh, give more uh, leverage in the process to birth mothers. Uh, and uh, I find it fascinating culturally that um, uh, birth mothers who um, have uh, been moving toward the decision that they might need to relinquish their child are now presented with kind of choice books uh, of dozens of potential adoptive parents who have expressed an interest. This is not necessarily the way that an agency might handle it, although perhaps some agencies do. It is certainly the way in which a lot of the um, middlemen, lawyers, and facilitators approach it because it is the thing that makes, in many cases, makes the birth mother most likely to be comfortable with the fact that she chose that uh, she was able to influence what type of family would be raising her child. And, and that, it's, I'm sure there is much to be said both for and against, but I think that one of the think ways in which it probably is a good thing is that uh, it makes many birth mothers feel at peace with their decision in a way that a more uh, bureaucratic process might not. So I, I throw that out there as reasons to, to like the pluralism and diversity of, of letting the private uh, facilitators do their thing. Um, are there more comments? And also, I, my question to uh, you, Peg, was um, you didn't get into some of the policy implications of uh, your findings as much as I hoped you would if there were time. W would this be a good time to talk a little more about what you think indicated uh, policy implications might be? Well, I think um, I thought that this was actually going to be more of sort of a religious liberties constitutional law conference than it turned out to be, and that is what I didn't want to get into. Um, I, while I do believe that there are some real roles for religious adoption agencies, I'm also, like I think everybody else um, here today, I am not a fan of kids staying indefinitely in foster care or um, never finding permanent homes or aging out of foster care. Um, so to the extent that um, couples who would not have been able to adopt previously and who now are able to marry, um, and, or single couples too, can provide loving homes for these kids, I'm, I'm all in favor of it. Um, so. And, and actually, um, as Sarah may have mentioned, the um, LGBTQ community adopts at a five times higher rate than the heterosexual community does, partly because they, in some cases, have to, but also because they genuinely um, uh, sympathize with the needs of all these kids who, who have um, not great lives, if they're, especially if they're older, or they're disabled in some way, 
or they're part of a large sibling group or they're multiracial or some other thing that makes them hard to place. Thanks. Um, and Mark, you're not going to escape. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, you have done the reverse of what uh, we usually worry about with our speakers, which is usually we worry that they will um, sell their books too hard and spend too much time on what's in their book. And I'm so curious, you've just written a book, but you didn't spend a lot of time referring to it. Tell us what's in the book. Well, uh, it's called Saving International Adoption. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, it actually asks the question, what's going on with international adoption? Why is it collapsing? And tries to do some explanation and then tries to suggest maybe some policy things that might help. And one of the things that we expressed surprise about, we started this book because we couldn't understand, and I remember this very clearly. One day I looked at Newsweek and it had a picture of Africa on it. And it said, this continent is full of orphans. So I said, okay. We, we had adopted once, I went on the internet and looked for countries in Africa that might release children for adoption. There were three. Africa has about 75 countries. There were th maybe 50 something. There were three. And so why wasn't this happening? And um, so when we started researching this book and uh, like Peg, we're, we're, we're numbers crunchers. We don't do this writing books things, okay? But um, we started finding out that there was so much hostility to international adoption in so many arenas, the academic arena, the government arena, uh, among even among a, a lot of adoptees are opposed to it. And so we tried to write a book explaining this. And a couple of our hypotheses are, one, national pride and Professor Bartlett has talked about this in her books, plays a huge role in, I mean, why did Ethiopia shut down adoption? Well, it gave some reason because the child had been abused, but that doesn't explain why you shut down a system that has let hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids go to families in America. The other thing we talked about is how there's hostility towards interracial adoption, a surprising amount of concern about that. And we address the empirical literature that says interracial adoption does not harm people. And then finally, we did this sort of crazy thing because we're economists and we do crazy things. Okay, and we talked about why is this, why is there so much of an obsession with not letting people sell their children? Well, because selling children is repugnant. Steve Levitt, the chairman, uh, the, the author of Freakonomics, says an economist is someone who's Im immune to repugnance. And it may, may be true. Um, but the point is, um, this actually happens in America. The, the obsession with making sure nobody gets compensated for that child, even in kind. I mean, even providing school fees for her other children or fixing her house or helping her get healthy so she can get a job. Can't even do any of that. That obsession has played a big role, in our opinion, in making international adoption unpopular because it's called child trafficking. The, I mean, the fact that the birth mother gets paid something, usually very little, becomes, becomes child trafficking. And... Um, so anyway, our book talks about those things and suggests a possible way of getting over this obsession about not one whiff or hint of baby selling and thinks about the larger issues of getting kids into loving families and, as a matter of fact, saving some of their lives. That's what the book's about. Thank, Thank you. you for asking me that question. <laughs> 
Thank you. And uh, Ryan. Yeah, I, I um, appreciate an opportunity to respond to what you said. Um, uh, to clarify my point, it's not to say that pluralism is bad or that we should have fewer providers. It's the type of providers that we should have. Um, I think you're right that often one of the most attractive things about these online facilitators is that they can offer a lot of choice. They have more online profiles for, say, an expectant mother to review parent profiles than a local adoption agency might have. Um, my, my point is, let's hold those providers to the same standard in terms of record keeping and ongoing counseling so that the vulnerable women and the adoptive families and the children can have that same level of care and support that they deserve. So it's not to say they, that they shouldn't be there. It's to say they should play, they should follow the state laws, not skirt them. Thanks. Um, we're now going to turn to uh, questions and answers from the audience. Uh, you know the drill as far as waiting for the um, uh, microphone to be brought to you. Please identify yourself and affiliation if possible. And uh, why don't we uh, have the first question from Professor, Professor Barthelot. So um, I want to um, underline something Ryan said and take it a little further and see if you disagree with me, Ryan. So on the Families First legislation, which I think is really important. I see it as legislation that is driven by forces within the US that are sort of comparable to UNICEF and the State Department internationally. So there are forces, the Casey Foundation primarily, that are profoundly anti-adoption. And the purpose of Families First is largely to prevent removal to foster care. They treat removal to foster care as the danger and the risk. And I think, um, and actually the Casey's would like to eliminate foster care altogether. So I don't want kids raised in foster care any more than I want them raised in institutions, but I, I think looking at the reduction of numbers in foster care as the goal is really dangerous because I, I believe based on a lot of the evidence that removal to foster care is primarily protective for children. Now, they shouldn't sit there forever. A lot of them should move on to adoption. Some of them could move home with good services to, to the parents. But, um, I mean, just one piece of support for why I think it's protective. If you look at the abuse and neglect rate, I mean, I, there's been a lot of, of scorn of foster care here. But if you look at the abuse and neglect rate in foster care, less than 1% per year of the kids in foster care are reported for abuse and neglect. Now compare that to kids identified as abused and neglected by their parents who are provided either family preservation services or reunification services. A half to two thirds of those kids are subject to reports of repeated abuse and neglect. Now that's over a few years, but less than 1%, I mean, we could say so it's 3% in a few years compared to half to two thirds. So, you know, I, I think Families First is really dangerous. And of course it has this wonderfully euphemistic title, but I'll stop. Yeah. No, 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 I, I do agree with you. I think your point is an important one. Um, I know there was some concern and, and talk of a, a conference on, on, on child protective services. There, there are 6.6 .6 million children referred to child protective services every year less than 5% of those children referred to CPS 
end up in foster care. It's, it's, not, it's not a situation where social workers around the country are snatching kids out of families. There's a high bar to enter foster care, and that bar is substantiated abuse or neglect. And so, um, as Betsy said, we're, we're not hoping foster care on kids, but there's a worse thing than foster care, just like there's a worse thing than an orphanage, right? I mean, we can imagine a kid growing up on the street. We can imagine kids in abusive families. Um, so we, we need to be very careful that, like you said, we don't simply have our goal to prevent this. Um, one of the other concerns, and I think it's a very significant concern with Families First, is um, we're asking states to, to choose, and, and oftentimes families to choose, are we going to allow these services, the substance abuse, the mental health counseling, all of that is predicated on a child not entering foster care. So there's going to be a greater burden on grandparents and, and other kin who are caring for these children. Currently, they can receive support through the state for that. Now they're going to have to decide, do I want my child to get substance treatment or do I need this support from the state? We're putting the, these parents in a, in a terrible situation. And, um, and, you know, writ large, we're putting states in a situation where they're going to be um, creating policies that are, are pushing this one way or another. Okay. Uh, next question. Uh, yes, in the middle there. Thank you, Gerald Chandler. Uh, you said that uh, the trend now is toward the birth mother having been in the driver's seat. In actual practice, when they do that, do they favor uh, adoptive parents of their own race or their own uh, religion? And is there any problem with that? Does anyone have an empirical reading on that? I'm happy to respond. There's also a lot of people in the audience who I think would respond very well to that. Um, I, I do think that that is the case, that often there are families that, um, that there are birth mothers who say um, very clearly, I want a childless couple, or I want a couple um, who looks like me, or I want a couple who's going to raise the child in this particular religion. I want a same-sex couple. I want a couple with kids. So they, they, sometimes birth parents come with very specific mindset for what those parents will look like. And by and large, I think adoption agencies go out of their way to find families that are going to meet the criteria that the birth parents are looking for. Um, you know, more specifically to your question, I think it would be more common than not that they're going to be looking for that match. But more and more, I, I, I think um, there are families who are more comfortable with um, multiracial families. And so I think that is less the case now than it was 10, 20 years ago. More questions, yes, uh, toward the door there. My name is Jed Medefend, and uh, I, I know there's a lot of debate in the realm of inter-country adoption regarding what role uh, or what the legitimacy of poverty alone being a driver of inter-country adoption. Um, I'd love to hear the, anyone address that. I, I would just put forward a thesis, which, which would be that, that poverty alone, just sheer lack of resources and nothing else should never be a deciding factor in a child being placed for adoption, that, that if there is the potential, there's a birth mother that yearns to raise that child, but for lack of resources, that it, there's a moral obligation. I would say this is a religious person, but I believe you could make an argument beyond religion for that, uh, that, that that child be able to remain with their mother, that the mother be able to re retain the child. But if, you know, then it moves into a neglect, abuse, abandonment, other causes, that's when we just have the conversation about intercountry adoption. But I'd just invite that, because I think that's a really important issue to address. You said uh, poverty should never be a reason 
for adoption. It's practically alone. It almost literally uh, mimics a statement by Save the Children, which says uh, poverty should never be a reason for separating a child from its family. Now, certainly, poverty shouldn't be a reason for people coming in and taking a child away. Nobody advocates that. Is poverty a good enough reason for parents to put their child up for adoption? Well, I once got a letter, my wife and I, from a, a woman whose child we were sponsoring. And the letter was addressed to Mohammed's American family. And she said, my son is 12 years old. He's ready to come to America. Please take him. Uh, will you, would you please um, take him and raise him? Because he's ready. You're his American parents. And I feel guilty about that letter because they didn't take the child, okay? So a lot of people in those situations understand how much better their children will be if they put them up for adoption. Nobody thinks it is appropriate to take a child away from a family because that family is poor. But I think there are a lot of families in poor countries that think poverty is an spectacularly good reason for their child to be adopted. And I don't think we should stop that. I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I'm just going to also respond to that um, very briefly by making a very obvious statement, which is that most families living in poverty continue to parent. They choose to parent. And so I don't want to present intercountry adoption as taking, you know, children from poor families. It should be um, when, when the birth family is known and involved, uh, their choice and and something that they're fully informed on when that's the case. Um, So I don't want to portray intercountry adoption that way. Um, I I agree with your statement that when poverty alone is the reason and the the parents are saying, we want to continue parenting, we shouldn't be stepping in and saying, sorry, you can't do that. We should be stepping in and, and assisting them with parenting in those situations. I think what's really challenging is it's never that simple, right? You know, when, when families are living in dire poverty, they are, they're at risk of neglecting their children, not because they want to, but because that's their situation. And so foreign governments, even here in the U.S., we, we have a really hard time distinguishing between what is willful neglect and what isn't in these situations. More questions? Uh, yes, on the aisle. Hi, uh, my name is Nina Crowd, and I'm a lawyer in uh, international and domestic uh, human rights lawyer in DC. And I have a, a kid who is almost 27 from Romania who I adopted, and uh, he is a fabulous kid. I was out over there in 91 uh, for quite a long time, and I can tell you in response to your question, People are in poverty in international settings, for example, Romania, because there is an enormous amount of discrimination in those countries, particularly in Eastern Europe and actually all through Europe, uh, against Roma. Most of the kids in the orphanages in Romania at the time that I was there in 91 and 92 were Roma kids because they, they uh, and Ceausescu, the former government, had a policy, a no abortion policy, even though women had abortions. You wouldn't believe how many each woman had. Uh, but a lot, most of the women, most of the kids in orphanages were, were Roma kids. The same is true about indigenous populations in South America and Central America. The same is true for this country. 
most of the kids in foster care in this country are kids of uh, are either African-American kids or Latino kids from populations which are discriminated against by the other population, the white population in most cases, or in several uh, cases. So the poverty part of your question, you cannot ask those kinds of questions without also asking questions about what causes the poverty. The poverty is caused by discrimination, period. And so kind of trying to separate poverty from discrimination, uh, cultural discrimination is kind of, it, you, 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 you shouldn't, that's the wrong question to ask. You need okay. to really look at the whole. Um, anyone on the panel want to respond to that? Okay, uh, more questions? Uh, yes, on the aisle there. Hi, thank you, um, and also, uh, Poverty is an issue in the United States. I was adopted in Detroit from a mother who was financially unable to raise me. Um, so it's, it's definitely <laughs> an issue across the board. Um, but you know, I think every panelist pointed out the astronomical cost of adopting internationally. And um, you know, how, how much do you really see uh, potentially lessening the policy barriers having an impact on that and creating a lower cost of entry to families who are able to raise children and love them and give them good homes, but may not be able to financially um, achieve that cost of entry right now. Responses from the panel? Uh, in studying international adoption, several people have said to me, can you figure out where the money goes? <laughs> and I, I don't have the answer to that. Uh, I don't know that tweaking policy the way uh, I have described it is going to make a big change in reducing cost and making adoption, international adoption, available to people who are of modest means, because right now it's not. Okay, it's a, it's a upper middle class, wealthy person's choice. Um, and so I don't know how much that would happen. Um, and I don't honestly, in spite of calling myself an economist, I don't know how we lower that cost. I think regulations do raise it, but how much would, uh, uh, how much would it, if it were, um, you know, more libertarian, a more libertarian approach, how much would that change? I think in Romania, where there was a short period where there was an almost open market in children, where people were coming in from around the world and the government was not regulating it, I think costs were considerably lower than they are today. I'm not advocating necessary we do the sort of Wild West thing that Romania did, but so that's a non-answer to your question. Um, and what, one point that came up in Professor Bartholet's talk also is that the um, costs that are not direct outlays can also be enormous and prohibitive, such as uh, uh, requirement to spend time unpredictably in the foreign country. And that's something where um, I would have a hard trouble advising many people to enter international adoption who could not uh, accommodate a wrench in their schedules, suddenly requiring them to spend weeks in a foreign country. And of course, most people uh, are in jobs that, where they can't do that. Yeah, and I, I would respond. I do think the cost is something that's important to look at. I think the cost should be reduced, but I, I, this is not a supply-demand issue. There are more families that want to adopt 
and are, are, are safe and loving and, and could, and I think I would say should adopt, and there are more children than are being adopted. So this isn't for lack of parents, and this isn't for lack of children. This is a government bureaucracy, and when we talk about inner country, it's multiple governments, plural, you know, bureaucracy and red tape that's causing the problem here. We are now out of time. Any final comments from anyone on the panel? I just wanted to say that um, someone else has said this earlier, that, that being poor doesn't mean you're a bad parent. And I want to reinforce that. The current work, empirical work I'm doing with uh, Marsha Garrison is with an extremely disadvantaged population in the county where I live. And uh, the rate of... Um, Abuse is much higher, abuse neglect is, that's substantiated is much higher than it would be in the population at large. But there's still 70-some percent of um, the parents in our sample, none of whom's married, um, who don't have any encounters with the child welfare system after the initial paternity action. One of the things that we found is really in, um, related is moving around, and I don't know that anybody's ever really looked at residential instability as being a cause of a lot of um, social problems for for families. So that might be something for young young people out there looking for things to work on, um, a good thing to, to look at. Any other comments? Just want to thank the Cato Institute for hosting this. I know we've raised a lot of tough issues and appreciate the willingness to do that. And thank Professor Wilson for a lot of the work she did to organize this. Well, I, I was just about to do that myself. Uh, we are. Um, just a word before I thank our panel. Uh, uh, we will be breaking for a reception in the Winter Garden. Uh, look forward to uh, talking with many of you here, uh, there, there. And um, thank you all for coming. And let me especially thank uh, first uh, Professor Robin Wilson for doing a lot of the heavy work of making this happen and uh, our panelists uh, for a most instructive discussion today. Thank you. Thank you.